The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, February 27th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a new professional credential option for service members for when they muster out. Plus, Health and Human Services takes a new step towards a long-sought goal for better health information sharing. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, agencies have a new set of plays to improve how they recruit, retain, and develop their workforces. The Office of Personnel Management's new Workforce of the Future playbook is the latest way for agency managers to hire faster, get people with the necessary skills, and keep their employees engaged. For how the playbook can help all federal managers, Federal News Network's Jason Miller spoke with the Deputy Associate Director for Strategic Workforce Planning at OPM, Jason Bark. There are a total of 12 plays that are outlined in there. It's really designed to help agencies implement many of the initiatives that we've already been talking about where we still know there's work that needs to be done, where agencies still are saying, hey, can you help us a little bit more with some of these areas? And so that's what the playbook's really designed to do. It's designed to be that implementation tool. It's got resources for agencies. It's got examples from other agencies that have been successful in there. We talk about um, call to action, what you could do right now to start implementing some of these plays, and then some you know, suggested metrics on what you could do to be able to measure to make sure that you're being successful. And we really think that, you know, if, if these plays are really implemented correctly, it's really going to kind of give that roadmap on how we get to where we want to go. When you're putting this together, how did you kind of decide, hey, 12 is enough? Why not 15? <laughs> Why not 100? I know there's uh, some some crazy number of a th- of a special hiring authorities out there. You could have done a play for every hiring authority. How'd you come to the 12 plays? And maybe give me a highlight of one or two that maybe aren't used that like you like you think that they could be or should be. We started down this path. You're right. I mean, there, there are numerous different areas that we could cover and we hope to cover them in the future as we move forward. The, the playbook's meant to be very fluid and a living document. And as we continue to, um, work in other areas and and understand where gaps may be in supporting agencies, then we can start, you know, thinking about other plays and and how we do that and how we build that out. But as we started thinking about this, you know, we started really engaging with our stakeholders and really starting to understand where the barriers were, where the issues were. We started looking at a lot of the initiatives we had and where we hadn't advanced as far as we had hoped to and trying to understand what that looked like. We really engaged with the Chicos. We actually met with them multiple times at both fall forums when they all came together. We asked them through the Chico annual survey. We engaged in work group conversations. So we really started crafting it by taking that stakeholder input and really understanding where we needed to go. And, you know, you talked about some of the plays where we maybe could do better or things that, you know, we want to continue to advance. And I think you're going to really start right at, you know, hiring, you know, we talk about pooled hiring and skills-based hiring. I think skills-based hiring is something that's on everybody's mind. How do we build assessments? How do we, you know, kind of eliminate this self-assessment where people are going in and rating themselves as expert. And then we're getting unwieldy number of, of applicants that, you know, puts a strain on our HR workforce, puts a strain on our manager. So 
let's have some skills-based assessments. Let's go in and let's work through and really be able to get those, you know, ask the right questions, get the right candidates that we can get to the hiring manager to improve that efficiency, to, to really get those people that have the skills that we're looking for. And so we talk about ways that we can do that. And we provide those, some of those resources in there. You know, we talk about Hold hiring is another big initiative that we're working on where we're kind of, you know, you know, one announcement for many jobs, you know, where we're sharing across organizations, we're sharing across the government. So we don't, not everybody has to go out and hire for an HR specialist. We can have a pooled hiring action where we go out and we have this um, base of candidates that have already been vetted and, and qualified and agencies can then take from that pooled hiring and save time and save resources where they have to go through that, where they've already been kind of qualified and are ready right there. You know, we can see an in, see quicker hiring timelines. We can get to those quality candidates. So some of those um, areas are, are, you know, in the playbook that we want to talk about that, that how we start doing that. You know, we talk a lot about AI. AI is really on the, the forefront right now. This is something new we haven't been talking a lot about. And so there's a play on AI and how we start thinking about that and how that's going to impact our workforce. So um, just a couple of the plays that I would highlight right there. And one of the things about the playbook that I, I enjoyed, it's not just, hey, here's a play, here's how it's done, but the amount of information you all put together is pretty incredible. Did that happen as you were starting to put this together was the idea is, well, we'll just put a play because we've seen playbooks throughout the years. And, and then did you find yourself just inundated with examples and metrics and, and how, <laughs> how did it all come together? We really wanted it to be comprehensive. You know, we didn't want to just kind of, you know, oh, check the box. Here's a playbook. Hope this helps. We really wanted it to really give those resources and really kind of almost follow a plan that say, hey, if I'm going to do this skills-based hiring, here's what it's about. You know, here's kind of currently what we're doing. Here's where we want to get to do. Here's some agencies that are really doing it well or that have had success at it. And then here's a bunch of tools and, and resources. And so as we began, you know, as I said, engaging with our stakeholders and talking about, they're like, oh, well, it'd really be great, you know, if this got to a, a manager and they said, okay, what, what should I be doing now, right? You've given me a lot of information. And that's kind of where the call to action came from. Hey, here's some steps you can take like right away to be able to start implementing this. And then, you know, how are we going to know if it's successful or how how should I judge how I'm doing? And so then we started, you know, looking at some metrics and some are, you know, maybe a little higher level metrics that a Chico or an agency would look at, but some are metrics that a hiring manager could look at or, um, you know, an HR leader within an agency. We talk about a lot of like connecting the FEV, some of those metrics, some of your time to hire, you could be looking at that at any level within an agency or how am I doing or how many, you know, assessments do I have for that I could use for hiring? So we really wanted to make it actionable and really um, something that they really could use, you know, and if they wanted to go back and say, hey, I learned about that, that skills-based hiring. I, I, I'm going to do a hire. I want to know how to do that. I can go right to that playbook and say, hey, here's, some, here's where I start through these call to actions. And here's some agency have done it well. Maybe I'll call up that agency, you know, and, and have a collaborative conversation with them. So that's kind of how we start, how we built it and how we wanted to really be used. In the end, you want to make sure people use it. You don't want this to become shelfware. So how are you going to socialize this? I think it's really important, you know, to, to now get the word out there and, you know, that this has been, you know, released. We're using some, you know, some marketing directly get this to the, to the hiring managers so it's in their hands. 
We developed a bunch of webinars for each of the plays. We've already announced some of them. There's going to be more coming. Uh, that link was out there in, in the memo. It's been um, socialized to the Chicos, to our workforce. We've been targeting managers directly. And we're going to have subject matter experts from OPM that are going to be walking through the different plays and how we implement them and what we mean when we say this. And then we're going to, the agencies, some of the agencies that are highlighted in the playbook are actually going to be in the webinar with us. And they're going to talk from an agency perspective, like, how we're interpreting this and how we're implementing these plays. And so we want to continue to make sure that we are out there in front. It just wasn't something that we wanted to issue and kind of be done with. We want to make sure people really understand and have those tools, how to implement that. And so we'll continue to look at that and we'll really, you know, continue to be mindful of new, new initiatives that are coming. And if we see that there's a gap or if we hear from Chico's that, Hey, this is another area that we really need help on. We'll make sure that we start thinking about how do we, how do we have new plays that come out, you know, and, and we work closely with this group. We're going to have evaluations, I think, after these trainings where we'll get some feedback and say, what else would you like to hear from us? What else may be missing in there or, or other areas or other topics that are of interest to you or you need support on? And so then we can start working again, you know, on, on a play for that and help them and announce these new plays, add them to our future or our workforce of the future webpage that's out there. Jason Bark, Deputy Associate Director for Strategic Workforce Planning at the Office of Personnel Management. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Check out Jason's Federal Report story and a link to the playbook at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, HHS takes a step towards a long-sought goal for better health information sharing. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. One of the biggest obstacles to streamlining information sharing in the health field is the data itself. Various health information systems for decades simply haven't been compatible with one another, and that makes things slower and less efficient for patients, for healthcare practitioners, and the industry itself. Recently, Health and Human Services updated something known as TEFCA, the Trusted Exchange Framework and Common Agreement. TEFCA is all about interoperability of health information. Here with what's going on, the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology at HHS, Mickey Tripathi. Dr. Tripathi, good to have you with us. Thanks. Really delighted to be here, Tom. And there seem to be two parallel efforts that have been going on for some time. One is about the data. One is about getting more institutions to use electronic health records, which has been partially successful. But tell us more about TEFCA, what it is, and what's going on with it. So, you know, let's just break that down a little bit. First, about getting people to use electronic health record systems. We've actually had remarkable success over the last decade. So owing to a lot of federal support in the way of incentives to provider organizations, as well as a lot of private contribution and sweat equity from uh, physicians and those adopting systems, now 97% of hospitals and about 80% of physician offices across the country use a certified electronic health record. So not just any old electronic health record system, but they use an electronic health record systems that's certified by my office, the National Coordinator's Office. So we don't actually have a big problem with respect to adoption of electronic health records among hospitals and physician offices. We've done a tremendous amount of work over a dozen years on the public and private side to get that in place. But what we're trying to do now is make it as easy as possible for those systems to share information with each other in the best interest of patient care. 
Got it. And that's where the data interoperability piece comes in. And so Tefka is all about the data, fair to say? It's all about sharing data among those systems. Yep. In a safe, reliable, accurate, privacy-protecting way. Is the challenge, therefore, getting the systems to maybe update or alter in such a way that the data becomes more interoperable? That is to say, if your gastroenterologist has one system and your eye doctor has another, why those two would ever need to mix, I don't know. But the idea is that one practitioner could see what's going on with another, again, at the micro level. And also, I guess, for the research community, having interoperable data from multiple sources of systems would be really important. Yeah. And certainly one part of it is making sure that the data is you know, sort of compatible so that if I get information from another practice, from another provider, that I actually can make use of it and not have to go through you know, all sorts of expense and heroic efforts on my side to figure out what that data is. Because the minute you do that, we know that people will do what everyone does and that you and I do in our regular lives, which is well, I got it electronically, but it's too hard to figure out. So just send me a fax, <laughs> or let me just pick up the call. Let me just pick up the phone, or can you just mail it to me? Right, it's a lot easier. So what you need to do is say, how do you make this electronic mode easier for people than the existing ways of doing it? So one part is the data itself, and I'm happy to report that that's a big part of what we've done with the electronic health records. So as a part of those electronic health records that you know, as I said, cover the vast majority of hospitals and most physician offices they're required to support a minimum data set standard that we call the US Core Data for Interoperability, US CDI. And that's like a minimum data set that standardized data that covers all of the data mostly that you would uh, you know, think of, Tom, even though I assume you're not a physician, but if you were off the top of your head gonna say, what information do I think you know, my, a doctor would wanna have? Well, it's your problems, your allergies, your medications, your lab reports, you know, your uh, results of imaging, um, those kinds of things. That's what's in that minimum data set. So that we've been able to accomplish. It's absolutely not perfect, but there's a lot of commonality there. So if you're in Nome, Alaska, or in Sarasota, Florida, you can have a pretty good expectation that the data you're going to get out of an EHR system is roughly compatible. Again, not perfect, but pretty good. The challenge is how do you connect up those systems so that when I ask you for a record for, let's say, electronically, that I know, A, you are who you claim to be. How do I know that you're not Joe's hacking shop, you know, trying to hack into medical records and then sell them on the dark web? And that B, you're actually authorized to have that information. So there's a difference between saying, well, you are a physician office, but how do I know that you actually see that patient? Because if I give that information to you and you actually don't have a treatment relationship with that patient, that's a violation of privacy from an ethical perspective. It also could be a violation of law as it relates to HIPAA nationally as well as state. So that's what these networks do is provide that overlay of governance and technical and policy requirements that give everyone assurance that everyone on this network is a responsible actor. And if they don't act responsibly, responsibly there'll be penalties and sanctions associated with it. We are speaking with Dr. Mickey Trapathy. He is National Coordinator for Health Information Technology at the Department of Health and Human Services. And who are the parties to TEFCA? I imagine, you know, the federal government is more the convener, but also a party to it. Yeah, and no, I think you said that right. The federal government is a convener right now. So the direction that we got from the 21st Century Cures Act of 2016 was for ONC, my office, National Coordinator's Office, to help to develop a nationwide network of networks interoperability model. 
And what that means is, you know, why do we say network of networks? The analogy I like to use is think about the way cell phone networks or ETM networks, for that matter, work today in the market. Let's take cell phones because everyone's very familiar with those. You've got AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile and Sprint. And all of those are actually private networks, if you think about it, right? They're private commercial networks, but they are connected on the back end via a network like, you know, governance technical specifications, expectations about, you know, how they exchange information in a way that you and I have the experience of it being a single network, right? We don't worry about, you know, well, Tom, you bought an AT&T phone. I bought a Verizon phone. Ah, we're not going to be able to talk with each other, <laughs> right? We never worry about that. We, we go to Best Buy and we buy or go to, you know, go wherever you go and you buy the cheapest, best phone for your needs and you know it's going to be connected with everything else. Right now in healthcare, we have hundreds of networks, literally. Some of them are state and local networks. Some of them are nationwide networks, but they really don't connect with each other. And what we want to be able to do and the direction we got from Congress was basically, not to put words in their mouth, was basically say, do for these clinical networks what cell phone networks you know, have today. That you purchase the system you want, you join the network you want, and you'll have the assurance that you will be safely connected to every other network and you don't need to worry about that anymore. And is the network technically encrypted or VPN type of version traveling over the Internet? Or are there actual still networks like we used to have, value-added networks that predated the Internet? Yeah, no, these are, I mean, you know, in the, you know, sort of in, a, in the modern age now, everyone has commodity Internet. Um, so, you know, basically a network is about establishing governance and then establishing security protocols and you know technical infrastructure like public key infrastructure for example to define what is the network if you're a part of that you know that PKI infrastructure using x509 certs and you know all of that regular infrastructure then you are now a part of our network and there are rules about who's in and who's out and what are the rules of the road we're not laying down t1 t3 you know lines anymore uh, we can just use the commodity internet but there is a security overlay so that only those who are a part of the network can actually you know, exchange information with each other in the same way that your banking information is highly protected, even though you're using commodity Internet. Right. There's no special line between you and the bank. You've just got additional security provisions on top. We use the same set of security protocols for TEFCA and this kind of a, um, network exchange as well. But the networks, again, it's network of networks. The networks are already established networks. I mean, that's the principle is that we're not starting from scratch to build these from the ground up, we're saying these are networks that already have, you know, a significant number of participants already, and they have to meet certain eligibility requirements, as well as, you know, technical performance requirements to be considered a TEFCA network. And once they pass those tests, then they're able to, you know, go live and connecting with each other. And first responders and that whole community often generates the initial information on health when they respond to someone who might be injured or burned or whatever the case might be. Are those party to TEFCA also? That's a great general example, actually, of some of the gaps that exist in the marketplace today and that we want to be able to use TEFCA to help fill. So as I said, there are a number of networks now. I mean, there are literally hundreds of networks across the country that exchange information. And the private sector has actually done a fantastic job. Before joining the federal government and, you know, in 2001, I was very much a part of that, sitting on the boards of some of these nonprofit networks. And so I saw firsthand how much they had accomplished. But the private sector alone can't do it alone um, because healthcare, as you pointed out earlier, the federal government and state governments are very involved in healthcare. I mean, they deliver healthcare, they pay for healthcare, they set the rules of the road for you know for healthcare. So it's very hard for the private sector on its own to solve all these problems. 
And so that's what TEFCO represents, is really saying, all right, the private sector has taken it as far as it can possibly do. It's done a great job. But now we need public-private collaboration with the power of federal government convening to help to bring that together to say, what are the other things we want to do? One is what I described, which is connecting the networks together. Second set of things is there are gaps that the market itself hasn't really solved and has difficulty solving. One is, as you point out, first responders. So we're actually working with a group of first responders who are now already working on joining one of the approved networks so that we do have the ability then for, you know, for first responders, ambulances and, you know, and other first responders to be able to share information with provider organizations. Other gaps that I would point to, though, are public health. Huge gap. Right now, there's even after a pandemic, public health agencies were not able to connect to the networks, the nationwide networks that exist today for a variety of reasons related to the complexity of regulatory frameworks and the fragmentation of jurisdictions and all of that. Nothing the private sector can solve on its own. That's something that the federal government, you know, ONC and the CDC and jurisdictions working together. Last thing I'll point to are two things. Another one is individual access. You as a patient ought to be able to access the network to get your own information, right? I mean, that, that seems like ought to be a fundamental right. So we're working very hard to say that's what TEFCA needs to be able to support as well. There's lots of complexity there. And that's why, you know, again, this public-private collaboration is needed. And then finally, payers, healthcare payers. Um, they have been excluded from these networks for a variety of competitive reasons that, you know, that exist in the market. Again, we as the federal government have been saying, you know what, we understand there are competitive issues, but that can't be what prevents us to get to the higher level of healthcare interoperability that American citizens need. And so that's what we're going to do is break through that to fill that gap as well. Yeah. And so in a lot of ways, the banking and credit card systems and clearances, and there's a whole complexity behind all of that, or say the airlines have, you know, inter-airline clearance mechanisms and payment mechanisms going back decades. Those are pretty good models too. They are, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of similarities there. I think one of the differences and why we need more of this proactive public-private sort of collaboration here is that unlike those other industries, the federal government, I would, I mean, the federal government is involved in all those industries, right? So it's not as if it's not, but the federal government plays a unique and very large role in healthcare that's somewhat different than, you know, in other industries. And the other thing about healthcare is that it's unbelievably fragmented, much more so than banking, that, you know, the industries you named, right? Banking, airlines that have a lot of consolidation to them, healthcare is unbelievably fragmented. And so it takes something like the federal government to help to just convene everyone to say, all right, we're going to get everyone together and work with states as well to say, we're not stepping on states' toes, but we need to have something that gives more systemness to our system. That's the important role that the federal government plays in this. And late last year, the TEFCA group, your group, updated from 1.0 to 1.1, which indicates the relative newness of the whole enterprise here in TEFCA. But what changed recently? 2.0 2.0 is, is just about to happen. Um, so uh, not to get too wonky here. So and, and just to set the table here for everyone, just so everyone knows what's happened. Um, when we came into this administration, we said within a year, we are going to get TEFCA, the core TEFCA framework out to the public for the public to react to and provide us comments back in with an eye towards saying we're going to go live. We're going to have networks that step forward and say that they want to do this voluntarily because the 21st Century Cures Act didn't give the federal government, my office, any budget or any new authority for TEFCA and explicitly said that TEFCA has to be voluntary. So I have no ability to order, nor does Secretary Becerra have the ability to order anyone to join TEFCA. So we have to make it a true public-private collaboration model that said, 
how can we work together to get to something that all of us want and that the private sector sees as valuable? Otherwise, they're not going to invest their money. So within a year, we made available version 1.0 of this common agreement, which is a common contract that everyone across the country would sign if they want to participate in TEPCO Exchange. So everyone knows the rules of the road. Again, if you're in Nome, Alaska or Omaha, you know that if you have signed this agreement and you're sharing information with a provider organization in Nome, Alaska, they've agreed to the same set of rules, right? You don't have to worry about, you know, is there a different set of rules here that I don't understand that are going to get me in trouble? So the next thing we did is we said, now we invite private sector networks to step forward and join TEPCA as networks. And I'm really pleased to report that seven of them stepped forward a year after, this was a year ago, stepped forward and said, we are committed to implementing TEPCA. Some of those are very well known, I think, to a lot of people. Epic, for example, very large EHR vendor, they stepped forward and volunteered to be one of these networks. The Commonwealth Health Alliance, which covers Oracle Health, which is the VA's system. For yeah, example, that's the obvious one features. I was going to ask about. Yeah. Right. Athena Health, uh, eClinical Works, Meditech are all under the Commonwealth Health Alliance umbrella. eHealth Exchange, which has a number of federal government participants in it. The VA, for example, participates in that as well as others. So significant networks step forward, those seven. And now, a year later, as of January, seven are now live. All seven of those are live, exchanging information with each other. And then 2.0, what 2.0 does, and sorry, last point, I know I'm going on a lot here. What the 2.0 common agreement does, which we're going to release before the end of the first quarter here, so the end of March, is it upgrades the technical standards to allow API-based exchange for those who are technically knowledgeable, um, which is you know a more modern way of, of having information exchange in the same way that you download apps on your phone and it make it that easy and that convenient. That's what Tefco will support um, in this calendar year. Dr. Mickey Trapathy is National Coordinator for Health Information Technology at the Department of Health and Human Services. Thank you for a thorough update. Thanks so much, Tom. Really appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information about TEFCA at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, advice for contractors when the government really, really, really could shut down. But first, a new professional credential option for service members when they muster out. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Military service members who want a way to get a professional credential in coaching have a new way to do so. It's via the Credentialing Opportunities Online or COOL program. Now, COOL has been around for years. Most recently, it's enlisted the International Coaching Federation. Here with more, Carrie Abner, the Vice President for Credentials and Standards at the International Coaching Federation. Ms. Abner, good to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And also Danny Doucette. He's a trustee of the Air Force Aid Society and a coach and an Air Force former officer himself. Mr. Doucette, good to have you with us. Thank you for having us. And Carrie, I'm going to start with you. Tell us what this credential is for and maybe a little bit about the International Coaching Federation. You're not talking about football and baseball coaching, are you? That's right. We're talking about professional coaching and at the International Coaching Federation, we are the largest global professional association of professional coaches. And what we mean by coaching, it's a collaborative, creative process where a coach works with a client to help them realize their full personal and professional potential. 
So at the ICF, we provide professional certifications for coach practitioners, and we are delighted that one of our credentials, the Associate Certified Coach Credential, has now been approved and is available to U.S. military service members and civilian staff through the COOL program, the DOD COOL program. The Associate Certified Coach Credential acknowledges professionals who have attained education, experience, and independently validated their knowledge and skills through assessment to serve as a qualified coach. So we're very excited to make that available to service members. Okay. And Danny, you know, the often expectation is that people coming out of the military have done so much and has such great leadership skills, et cetera, et cetera, that they can just march right into industry and find a place. The reality is quite different, though, isn't it? It is. And a lot of the uh, bridge that happens in the civilian sector requires either a license or a certification. They have all this experience growing up in the military. And then as they transition out of the military, they're kind of on a gap. And what the ICF associate certification does is bridge that gap. It's the gold standard of coaching internationally. You know, in the military, we've had several opportunities, but we call it something different in the military. It was mentoring in the military versus on the civilian sector, it's called coaching. But can you make a living at it? It's not like you're getting a credential to pull a tooth, which would be a dental degree and a dental license, which is, you know, a living. (laughs) Is coaching something someone can do or is it something you do in connection with some other private sector job? Well, I'm a beneficiary of this. And so if it wasn't for this in 2018, when I transitioned, I wouldn't have received the position where I'm currently at. There's a lot of fields, career placement and the HR field, executive leadership, training development, and overall, just general leadership. When you think about coaching, just like what Carrie said, it's holding peers accountable. And so it's a fundamental core competency that you learn, you get certified, but not only for that person itself, but the people that are hiring coaches, they know that there's ethics behind the coaching. There's confidentiality behind that. So that trust factor really does help. And you can make a really successful career. I just so happen to benefit from the company that I work for, Leadership Foundry, a division of Parsons, And we do this both internally and for external clients. Parsons, you mean the big engineering firm? Yes, sir. Okay. Just want to make sure we get the right Parsons in there. And Carrie, how does this type of activity differ from mentoring? Because a lot of companies and organizations have mentors, but coaching sounds a little bit more formal. Tell us how that works. So in mentoring, generally speaking, the mentor provides expertise to the individual that they're supporting. Coaching is different. Coaching realizes that clients often have the resources, the answers, the solutions to help them grow and to best inform kind of their path forward. Coaches serve to support their clients in discovering and becoming aware of those solutions that are intrinsically inside them, that are already there just waiting to to come out and emerge. And it is a growing profession. We are seeing huge growth in the coaching profession worldwide. You asked a little earlier about the ability to make a living in this field. According to the 2023 Global Coaching Study that ICF supported, coaching has experienced huge growth 
with an estimated number of coach practitioners surpassing 100,000 for the first time ever. That's a 54% increase compared to 2019. So it's a huge and growing profession worldwide. We're speaking with Carrie Abner. She's vice president for credentials and standards at the International Coaching Federation. And with Danny Doucette, he's a credentialed coach himself, also a trustee of the Air Force Aid Society. And Danny, anything to add? One thing that I would mention also about executive coaching, it's very similar to sports coaching. When you think about an athletic coach where they have line coach, quarterback coach, a running coach, doctors, the profession of medical doctors may even hire a coach just to watch them during the surgery and hold them accountable, maybe provide them with a different perspective. High-performing CEO, C-suite folks, where they're actually performing and they just need that one edge just to continue or grow in a new company wherever they go. So it is a growing field. It is foundational, very similar to sports. And how do you make sure that coaches, is this in the credentialing or in the training, don't veer off into psychology? Because, you know, there's a common saying in management when you are supervising people, we're not psychologists. And it sounds like this could, without a little bit of fence around it, devolve into something someone's not qualified to do? That's a wonderful question, Tom. And that is built into the code of ethics, as well as into the core competencies for coaching practice. And to your point, the credential, the associate certified credential, which is now approved by the Department of Defense Cool Program, includes this as part of the requirements that coaches recognize the limitations, the boundaries of professional practice, and do not take on roles that are not within coaching itself. Coaching is different from therapy, counseling, and other similar helping disciplines, and it's important that we maintain that distinction there. As a certified coach, professional coaches sign on to a code of ethics, which they confirm and verify that they will maintain through their professional practice. Yes, because performance and situations that affect people negatively are often outside of the workplace. They could have a marital problem. They could have any one of a million types of things. So at that point, the coach's best advice is, well, you better see somebody about that because I can't help you. That's absolutely right. There are clear requirements within the core competencies that we provide for professional coaches to provide referrals to other support systems when a client may need it. And Danny, in your military experience, you have seen that people at a young age become responsible for the performance of others, often in life and death situations, and they call that leadership. And then there are specific skills you need in the military situation that you are trained to have. How does that map over to coaching or does it? It does. And when you think about even just being non-judgmental or holding others growing, leadership is about taking care of maybe their servicemen. ICF provides a framework where you could actually help them grow. And this is the beauty of executive coaching for the DOD, because whether it's promotion whether it's just transition into a career, I want to see that service person get better. And how do you do it? Through fundamental coaching questions. Typically, the response that we see is the service person knows the answer. The coach just provides questions to highlight that answer that they're going to come up with. Mentoring is, I will tell you how to do this. Coaching versus is, I'm going to help you through coaching questions. 
got it. So a good coach might have said to General MacArthur, maybe you should land before the president arrives. <laughs> yes, exact. <laughs> Danny Doucette is a credentialed coach and trustee of the Air Force Aid Society. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. And Carrie Abner is Vice President for Credentials and Standards at the International Coaching Federation. Pleasure having you. Thank you so much. It's been a delight. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information about the COOL program and about the ICF at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, advice for contractors when the government really, really could shut down. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The brinkmanship in Congress isn't looking good for 2024 budget prospects. Contracting, though, will continue even with a long-term continuing resolution or a partial government shutdown. For some advice on how contractors should deal with what might lie ahead, we turn to longtime federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. We don't know what's going to happen in the next day or so before the first shutdown deadline, but contracting always continues in some manner, doesn't it? Tom, that's right. I think the important thing to understand is while all federal agencies are operating under a continuing resolution right now, the government is still open for business and things are still moving forward. While agencies can't start new projects that require appropriated dollars, there's plenty of stuff that's happening right now in terms of planning. Uh, There are current projects that are ongoing and keep getting modified. And let's not forget, there are other pockets of money, like capital funds, aside from appropriated dollars that agencies can use, sometimes for very specific purposes, but they can use them. And that's getting done. Uh, So the business of the people, while it's not being done uh, the best way possible, it is generally moving ahead. And if you are supplying, say, critical ongoing services like security operations centers, even in a shutdown, you're likely to continue that work. I, I think that's something that people have to keep in mind, particularly this week, Tom, when we are just a couple of legislative days away from the first set of uh, CRs expiring. They expired midnight, March 1st. If you're working on sensitive projects, things that are uh, essential operations or support essential operations, chances are you are going to continue doing those things, even in the event of a partial shutdown for the agency that you're working for. And I would say, too, as you enter an agency or deal with an agency, when someone is an essential employee and they're on the job, or at least be sensitive to the fact they're not getting paid at the moment. They will get paid when the shutdown is over. Something to keep in mind in dealing with them. That's right. And I think that that's, you know, even as we run up to what hopefully will not be a shutdown, Tom, that's a distraction for your federal coworker, for your federal customer. And they're wondering about whether or not they're going to get paid. They're wondering about whether, you know, they're going to be able to continue to provide the needs for their themselves and their families. And that is inevitably a destruction uh, and a distraction. It could be a destruction, I guess, but it is certainly a distraction uh, from the day to day operations. You know, the, the good news for federal employees is that they will be paid eventually, but We're not so sure about contractors. Contractors don't always get paid for work that's performed during a shutdown. Uh, Kind of depends on the nature of the work. But if you haven't had those conversations with your 
federal customers now, you should be doing that immediately to plan for what could be, you know, a bumpy time. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. We'll see. I guess maybe they want a future-proof type of thing, and maybe they want a protest-proof approach. And I wanted to ask you about a solicitation for comments coming from the General Services Administration for the follow-on contract EIS, which is not even fully adopted by all of the federal agencies mandated to use it. This is the big government-wide telecommunications deal. GSA is looking for what follows, and it feels a little bit early for that. Tom, I think it is early. EIS still has about eight years to run on it. (laughs) Uh, And, you know, that's under the current uh, deadlines. You know, we we have seen GSA more recently extend deadlines out for their OASIS services contract, their Alliant 2 IT contract, just to name two. So it's entirely possible that, you know, when we get to the end of EIS, we'll see that extended out as well. So we may be talking potentially about even more than eight years. Despite that, the agency went out last week and asked for comments from industry on what the state of network infrastructure is going to look like uh, for the next uh, iteration of their contract. I was surprised about this for several reasons. One of which you pointed out, I think uh, it's going to be a considerable amount of crystal ball gazing to figure out and speculate what the next generation of network infrastructure is going to look like uh, in eight to 10 years. You know, think about where we were with telecommunications eight to 10 years ago from today. Uh, There are things that we could have predicted, but there are things like the pandemic that profoundly changed the ways in which people work that no one could have predicted. So I, I thought that was interesting. I think in addition to uh, the timeliness of it, uh, you know, we have to look and see what agencies are doing. And you kind of, you know, hinted at the lead in here. They're not really running out to embrace the current EIS contract. Uh, I took a look at the numbers. It took the first six or seven years before EIS generated even a billion dollars in annual sales. And while that's a lot of money, if you stack rank that against contracts like the GSA schedule, like Oasis, like Alliant, that's pretty small in comparison. And then you look even further and you see, well, you know, the top three contractors are responsible for 90% of the EIS business. What that means is there are an awful lot of contractors, primes and subs, that expended considerable resources to get on EIS and they're just not getting a return on that investment. So I've got to wonder why industry would run right out and provide GSA for comments on a contract that's going to be way over the horizon, may not be needed, and may not deliver the money and return on investment that they're hoping for. Plus, we'll see who on the program is still working there in eight years. <laughs> you know, there's been some... Well, there is that, yes. <laughs> All right. And then something else you're writing about I wanted to ask you about, and that is plaintiff's attorneys trolling for whistleblower business. A little different view of what is often seen as the virtue of whistleblowers. Tom, I took the page out of the Godfather movies for this one. Uh, the famous quote here is, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer It's worth it for contractors to look at plaintiff's bar attorneys uh, for the actions they're taking to try to attract whistleblowers for false claims act cases. 
you know, I, we write about compliance frequently because it's an important topic, but we don't really say, hey, you know, you need to look and see what people who might oppose you are doing. And they're very, very active. And so I was a little bit surprised, not just by the sheer numbers, because I've seen those before, but by the easy to use step-by-step whistleblower guidance that many attorneys provide right on their website pages uh, for would-be whistleblowers. I think it's really important for companies to take a look at that to understand what uh, their disgruntled current or former employees or even competitors might be looking at to come against them with a whistleblower complaint. Uh, You're better off understanding what could hit you before it does rather than get caught flat-footed. Yeah, there might be a new book in this, Whistleblowing for Dummies. (laughs) That wouldn't surprise me in the least. You know, as I was preparing this article, I saw a data point 13 whistleblower cases are filed each week. And while the majority of those are for healthcare contracts, hello, healthcare contractors, they do affect every type of contractor. And even if many of them are without merit, you still have to expend time and resources to defend yourself. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. On that happy note, thanks for joining me. Tom, thanks very much. And despite all of that, I wish your listeners happy selling. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And this program note, head to federalnewsnetwork.com today and tomorrow for our Artificial Intelligence and Data Exchange, featuring Senator Mark Warner and Austin Bonner of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. The number of small businesses participating in defense contracting has been dropping steadily, 40% in the last decade. With their first-ever national defense industrial strategy, Pentagon officials want to turn that number around. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis has more. This strategy has been out for a couple of weeks now, Anastasia, and what do they want to do about bringing in small business back to the industrial base? One thing that the new national defense industrial strategy recognizes and acknowledges is the need for flexible acquisition. And Danielle Miller, she's the acting deputy assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Industrial Base Resiliency. She said one thing that they want to work towards is being more accessible to small businesses. So, for example, the Pentagon recently awarded a new other transaction agreement for the Defense Industrial Base Consortium, and Advanced Technology International will serve as the consortium manager. This OTA will basically allow them to enable a faster execution of the Defense Production Act funding. The goal is to bring in industry partners, uh, including non-traditional contractors and small businesses, to work with the Pentagon on supply chain technology projects or potential research through prototype development initiatives. And um, there are currently no fees to enter the consortium. And that's basically their way of saying um, we're lowering the barriers of entry for small businesses. But at the same time, the consortium does reserve the right to introduce fees of up to $250 at a later date. And that will provide consortium members with access to membership meetings and industry events and stuff like that. But there are exceptions to that. Here's Danielle Miller, Acting Deputy Assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Industrial Base Resiliency. So one of the things we want to look at is make sure that we are more approachable for small businesses. Um, because the goal is we want to make sure is that we have access to new ideas as quickly as possible so we can bring them in and drive innovation in the 
through the defense industrial base. So we've, we've found the OTAs are very useful for that. You come into the consortium and we can take ideas and, and bring them to fruition faster. And one more thing to highlight is the Defense Production Act Program Office has a funding opportunity announcement. And they're currently soliciting proposal for production technology projects. So you can basically write a white paper. Companies can choose their own topics, but also it would have to align with the Defense Production Act's areas of focus. Those areas of focus include sustainment of critical production and scaling of uh, emerging technologies. Here's Daniel Miller again. If you have an idea, you can just write a white paper and submit it, and then we'll evaluate it against our criteria, and we can then you know, pick it up from there. And Pentagon acquisition officials feel they have enough authority to fund some of these ideas that are coming in through these white papers? Yes. As of right now, she said they have a lot of authority. And specifically, they want to use that authority to the maximum before they go and ask for any additional authorities from Congress. But, for example, through the Defense Production Act, historically, they've taken advantage of grants and procurements. But now they want to look at loans and loan guarantees. Here's Daniel Miller again. So we've mainly used grants and procurement commitments. During COVID response, we stood up the first loan program in 50 years. And so I run that program. And so then we're looking, taking those lessons learned to figure out how we would expand that out to a larger defense industrial base. So, and even within the FAR, sometimes there's clauses that we haven't thought to use in uh, new and interesting ways or used to address the challenges we have today. So I think we want to spend time leveraging the authorities we have and only then going and asking for additional authorities. And how is Miller and her cohort going about making sure that what they're doing is going to foster greater participation by small businesses? Do they know that this is how small businesses want to interact and therefore will come into the defense industrial base? She said that they actually have an entire industry engagement team. They've been doing a series of listening sessions. And of course, they're planning on doing um, a lot more in the future. And they're also doing meetings one-on-one with the industry so that they can provide feedback on the path forward now that the strategy is out. Also, one thing to highlight, she said that they're meeting with international partners as they're working on that implementation plan. Now, this strategy came out a couple of weeks ago, and I've heard reactions to it from ranging, well, it's a nothing burger to people saying, well, this is a really good start to fixing a big problem because the strategy is more than about the small business space. It's about the industrial base, period. So I guess my question is, any direction on what they're going to do with all of these strategies for the DIB? Right now, they're working on an implementation plan. The implementation plan will be classified. There is no timeline on when they're going to be finished. It's, as of right now, there is no idea whether the implementation plan or parts of it is going to be publicly available or there is going to be some sort of a messaging campaign around the implementation plan. But all she said was, and I quote, that they will be working through different venues to talk about specific components with the appropriate audiences. When I asked her about a public version of the implementation plan, they said that they don't want to promise anything. They will be a messaging campaign, possibly. A messaging campaign to try to get more people to build ships, airplanes, and small businesses to innovate. All right. That's the Pentagon. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 